Mollusca. Hello and welcome to Animalia, the podcast all about animals. And the weird and interesting things that they do. I'm Annie. I'm Farley. And I'm David. And today we have another episode that is part of the Pint of Science Australia Festival. So grab a pint and get comfy. Because today's guest is Dr. Justin Mayer, a scientist who's investigating whether probiotics could help save coral reefs. So my name is Justin Mayer. Um, I'm currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Melbourne in the School of Biosciences. Um, so I'm working in the group of um, Madeleine Van Open and Linda Blackall. And my focus is on coral microbial associations and how we can um, study those and adapt that to coral reef conservation. Before we dive into this episode, yes, corals are animals. They're in a group of animals called Nigeria, which also includes anemones and jellyfish. Yeah, so corals are pretty complex animals. And I think one of, the, one of the defining features is that they associate with these microscopic algae that are present without, within their tissues. And so these algae essentially harvest the sun's energy through photosynthesis and um, produce carbon compounds and nutrients that they translocate back to their coral hosts. Um, and as a result, they provide the coral with basically all of their energy requirements. I think something that confuses a lot of people is that coral actually is an animal. Um, cause I don't think people really realize that. And the fact that they actually function not only as animals, but also function as in a sense, doing photosynthesis, so doing something that a plant does, but it's all self-contained. Can you like describe like, what is, I guess, I don't know how to describe it. Why is coral an animal? <laughs> is that the easiest thing to say? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Corals are very complex organisms. They're part animals. They have plants inside of them. They're also part rock because they constantly produce this calcium carbonate skeleton. So there's many different parts to corals and yeah, essentially the, 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 the way that corals are made. So a coral colony will be a multitude of coral polyps. So polyps are really the individual um, units of the coral. Um, and so you have to imagine that each coral polyp kind of looks like a tiny anemone essentially. And all of those, um, all of those different polyps within a colony will be identical and linked together through the skeleton and interconnecting tissue as well um, on top of the skeleton. Yeah, I think that, that probably yeah. ends it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, yeah. Just a, it's crazy, but it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Was it? And then, with, as far as this algae that lives inside of them, is that it's something that they acquire over the first three months of their life, or the first few months, or is it something they're actually born with? It depends on the corals. So essentially, there's two. When it comes to reproduction, there's two types of corals. There's corals that we call brooders, and corals that we call broadcast spawners. So broadcast spawners essentially once a year they release into the water. Um, sperm and eggs, and then they'll just fertilize themselves in the water um, and then produce larvae. And these, these larvae will acquire themselves. So that's 
during a matter of a few weeks, they will require themselves um, algae that are present in the surrounding water. And then on the other hand, the brooders, um, they, um, they, they, they fertilize internally. So, so rather than out in the water, it's the, the sperm egg combining within the quarrel itself. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. That's exactly yeah. that. So within the group itself. So within that group you're describing, they're fertilizing within the individuals within the group. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Brooders will, well, yeah, species, same species will, will yeah, fertilize themselves, but internally. And so what they do then is that the larvae will, um, will stay for a little while within the coral polyps, uh, hence the name brooder, and mm. they will acquire the algae when they're inside the polyp still. So they'll, yeah, again, that's very quick, but that's what we call vertical transmission of, um, of the algae because it's essentially um, provided by the, uh, the core parent. In both cases, it happens very fast, yeah. That's interesting because it's almost like really, really basic parental care, right? Like the, the parent is just literally a structure providing shelter for the for the young. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it provides shelter and food, and then once it's once it's um, old enough, it just releases the larvae in the water, and then the larvae will have to find a nice spot to settle, colonize, and and produce new a new coral colony. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did you end up studying corals? Um, I think I've always been interested first um, more in animals than, you know, in human related science. I think it might be my very cynical side, but I'm always like, oh, there's enough humans anyway. We don't need <laughs> to research related to humans. Let's, let's take care of the animals first. Um, so I think I've always been, yeah, more interested about animals. Um, I think I've always been also interested in anything that's related to environmental problematics as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I did my PhD on insects, so not crawl at all, but I was, <laughs> I was looking already at um, bacterial associations with insects. And so that's kind of how I got into this microbiology slash symbiosis field. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and then at the end of my PhD, I was looking to stay within that bacterial association field. And um, yeah, I think the this current field that I'm in, the coral bacteria associations and especially how to use those, how to, how to harvest the bacterial power to kind of save corals is growing really fast. So yeah, I think yeah. that's, I, I thought that was super interesting. Um, I remember seeing the offer for the job that I eventually got, um, I remember seeing this offer and thinking, oh, wow, that's, that sounds amazing. That's exactly what I want to do. Let's go for it. And, um, yeah, I think it worked out pretty well. I think it's a really, it's a fascinating, it's much more fascinating than insects. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> They're very interesting. Insects, not insects, I, you know, but corals are just much more interesting and, I think it's also it's also quite gratifying to also do science that has actual applications and where you can see the difference that you're making through science. 
So the biggest threat to coral reefs, which Justin is hoping to protect them against, is rising temperatures. Those algae that live inside corals, providing them with all their energy, don't function so well when the water gets too warm. Yeah, and so lately um, we've seen increasing frequency in a phenomenon called coral bleaching. And so coral bleaching happens when uh, sea temperatures increase and get to a threshold um, at which the microscopic algae living within the coral tissues starts malfunctioning. And um, what happens then is that the corals essentially gets rid of those uh, of those malfunctioning algae. And since they're essentially what feed the coral, the coral will starve to death once it uh, gets rid of, uh, of those photosynthetic algae. And so that's coral bleaching. And so it's called bleaching because those algae are the only pigments present in the coral tissues. Otherwise, the tissues are completely translucent. And so once the algae are expelled from the coral, we can only see the skeleton that's underneath the tissues. And so that appears to be white, uh, hence the term coral bleaching. And so essentially that's been happening at increased frequency and increased intensity as well um, in the Great Barrier Reef, but also in reefs all around the world, uh, mostly because of climate change and the, um, the, the rapidity at which temperatures are increasing at the moment. Um, so it's a big, big concern for corals around the world and especially the Great Barrier Reef. So we're basically trying to find new approaches for coral reef conservation to kind of help the corals adapt quicker to those, um, to those rapidly changing environmental conditions. And so one uh, specific focus, one specific project that we're looking at right now is to essentially design bacterial probiotics. So kind of like what we find in yogurt that we can find in the supermarket that contain um, specific bacteria that will help us with digestion, for example, we essentially want to design bacterial cocktails that will, you know, sprinkle on the reef or administer to corals somehow, and that will mitigate coral bleaching, prevent coral bleaching, um, and hopefully, hopefully they'll get corals to survive a little bit longer while humanity as a whole kind of gets climate change under control. It's very hopeful. I like that. Yeah. yeah well, we try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes it's, it's hard to remain hopeful when every year it's like another year of mass coral bleaching. Half the corals have died this year in the Great Barrier Reef. And we're just sitting here in the lab thinking, oh God. Yeah. Have you been up to where those coral bleaching events have happened and seen firsthand? Um, no, um, I want to say, unfortunately, no, but I think it's more fortunate that I haven't seen it firsthand. Um, mm -hmm. I did, um, quite a bit of diving last year, but I think that was right before there was a big bleaching event and that might not have been in the same reefs anyway, but yeah, I haven't been able to see yet big devastation, at least like big, really big fields of bleached corals. I have seen, you can easily see um fields of dead corals that happens quite often and that's quite sad to see because you can easily compare you know a, a, a reef that's got many live corals and you can see how very vibrant it is with just 
fish everywhere, turtles, sharks, the whole thing. And then you just, you know, turn around a corner and then all of a sudden you have a dead patch of corals and there's just nothing around. And it's just yeah. to see. Um, and I think it's just a reminder of the utter importance of coral reefs in maintaining biodiversity in those, in those areas that really all of those, um, yeah, fish and turtles and other marine organisms really depend on coral reefs for their survival. Um, and I think that's why, that's another reason why coral reefs are just so important around the world because they house so much biodiversity uh, that, yeah, if coral reefs were to completely disappear, it would absolutely, it would completely change the, the marine landscape. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like your project is very solution oriented, right? Like it's not just identifying that this is a massive problem affecting corals, but this is a very specific really useful tool for possibly protecting them, which seems really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're still in the beginning of the project. So obviously we're still doing quite a lot of fundamental, mm -hmm. we're trying to answer a lot of fundamental questions, you know, which bacteria are there? What are they doing in, in normal conditions when they're in corals? How are they evolving in response to increasing temperatures, how do we culture them, how do we harvest them? So there's still a lot of yeah, fundamental questions that we need to go through before we get to testing actual probiotics. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, so stepping back to, so I saw, I think, an article you wrote where you described it's like Russian dolls. So you've got the coral and then you've got the algae inside the coral and then you've got the bacteria inside the algae. How long have people known about this third part of this, I guess, family relationship where there's the bacteria as well? Well, that's a bit of a tricky question because essentially we've known for um, decades that mm. there was the algae on one side. Um, we we've also known for a very long time, I want to say decades as well, because it's probably quite old, um, that there are bacteria in the cores as well. But the mm -hmm. fact that the bacteria can also be in the algae, that's very new. And okay. I, think, I think it was um, hypothesized, it's been hypothesized for a long time. Um, but yeah, so that was my first project when I started this, uh, this new postdoc is to properly show that there are bacteria living within the algae, living themselves within the corals with this, like you said, this, imbricated set of Russian dolls. So yeah, that, that was essentially what we showed was essentially the first like proper proof that yes, there are bacteria and algae within corals, but there are also bacteria within algae within corals. What a, what a satisfying start to your postdoc. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. It was like here we have preliminary results take them, finish the project. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, obviously I had a lot of help because we're, we're quite a big team, but yeah, no, that was, that was very nice. It was a bit, a project that was a bit interrupted by lockdowns and such last year. So yeah, it's complicated to get the story out, but we eventually did. And um, yeah, I think we've had lots of very positive feedback so far of people yeah, that were 
acknowledging the fact that it's been hypothesized for a while, but somehow no one had ever really focused on it and said, okay, we're going to show this once and for all with really convincing evidence. So, yeah. Interesting, because I feel like that's quite common in science, is these, there's these ideas that take hold that nobody actually tests. It's just sort of like, it's probably true, but uh, leave it for another day or just assume it's true and work from there. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, I think it was quite important to show that because part of our project is to not only identify, you know, which bacteria associate with corals, but we also want to identify bacteria that's specifically associated with corals and with nothing else, essentially, because if we're going to end up putting probiotics back onto the reef, we'd want those bacteria to affect corals, but ideally nothing else than corals so that we don't disturb the whole ecosystem. And so looking at bacteria that are intracellular and just really, um, yeah, specifically associated with those organisms, I think is really important for the future of these approaches. Mm. Yeah, it makes it makes me think of like pesticides and how you know agriculturally we just spray and then we think about the consequences later. The fact that you guys are thinking about like okay, take a step back, let's try to really figure this out before we actually unleash what could potentially be really harmful to other creatures. Yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned um, this pesticide example because the idea behind my PhD in looking at insect bacteria interactions was also to kind of build research towards developing new solutions, alternative solutions to pesticides that would target bacterial associations with insects rather than just random insects. Yeah. And basically trying to disturb symbiotic associations between insects and corals in order to disturb the insect itself rather than disturbing all insects. And so, yeah, there would have been a way to be more specific and less random. So, yeah. It's interesting. And how did that work out in the end? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was like, should I ask? <laughs> so it, was, it, no, it was a very interesting project, but it was very fundamental still. I think, mm-hmm. um, I think the lab itself um, doesn't really aspire to create those solutions, but just to put out research that might be used to create those solutions. Yeah, I love that. So it's like super specific targeting. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly the idea. Because as you've mentioned, pesticides, we put them everywhere on fields and then realize, oh, but the bees. Can someone think of the bees? Bit <laughs> <laughs> too late now. But. So when I, when I think of you putting probiotics on a reef, I'm imagining like yeah, large buckets of yogurt just being dumped in. What is your actual application process? <laughs> So that's, that's actually another another side of the project is to optimize how we're gonna inoculate those bacteria to the corals. So we often, yeah, we often mention yogurt as a comparison. We often say, oh, we're gonna sprinkle bacteria onto the reef, but <laughs> in reality, we're probably gonna gonna administer the, administer them really close to the corals and maybe even inject them directly in the corals. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of work 
also that's trying to see whether we could um, you know use some sort of vessels that the corals would eat and that would um, so the vessel whichever it might be would contain bacteria and then the coral would eat those vessels and then incorporate the bacteria so it could be coral food um, any type of beads that they could be integrated in the coral um, and then one also once one um, approach that would like to take is to use the algae themselves because these algae so the algae that live in the coral tissues also live in the water so we could be dropping algae in the water and then the corals would take them on um, and so as we've mentioned these algae can also have bacteria within themselves so the idea would be that we'd be able to modify which bacteria are within the algae, put the right bacteria, the probiotic bacteria that we chose, and then just administer those directly to corals. And so they would take on the algae and the bacteria, and then they'd be the only organisms on the reef to um, take them up. So that would be another, yeah another solution to not just dump a whole tub of yogurt on the reef. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it could be still be algae like yogurts. You just dump the vats of algae <laughs> back in. Yeah. That could be, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and also that idea too, what you're saying with feeding the algae instead and pro providing algae that already has a bacteria inside of it. What a better non-invasive way than having to go and inject individual corals with this bacteria? That's definitely something that people are thinking of, but I think if we want to use this approach on a larger scale, I think it's going to become quite time and personal intensive yep. to go and inject each and every coral on the reef whenever there's a bleaching alert, whenever a reef is getting too hard, just all, all going to go and dive on the reef with our syringes and just inject as many calls <laughs> we can. I think that might work one year and then people are going to probably bail. So. Well, then you blow your budget by hundreds of thousands of dollars of man hours. Yeah. <laughs> be so many man hours. That'd be <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The scale of the Great Barrier Reef and other reefs as well is just, I, I see, um, I don't know how you feel about this uh, statement that it's described as the greatest living organism on Earth, right? The Great Barrier Reef. Though I guess that it becomes a question about whether you can say it's one organism or not. Um, yeah, I think I've heard greatest living structure, which mm. that is definitely true and unquestionable because it's both bigger and has more biodiversity than um, tropical forests, for example. Yeah. Um, biggest organism, though, I guess a meta-organism could be a term mm -hmm. for it, but yeah. don't quote me on this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not recorded. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been a one quote you're known for. <laughs> Coming back to um, the bacteria as well, I know, I know you said mentioned answered some of this already but i guess people are familiar with bacteria like gut bacteria being important for us like the example of yogurt 
what is the role of the bacteria for the coral? Why is it so important for the coral? Um, so the studies, the functional studies in of coral-associated bacteria are quite recent and they're still very limited data on what they actually do. Um, there's been quite a lot of work on their role in protecting corals from other bacteria. So for example, there's bacteria in the mucus that's all around the coral that produce um, antibacterial compounds and yeah, essentially just prevent pathogens present in the water from um, colonizing the coral. Um, there's also been evidence that uh, some bacteria can participate in just general metabolism uh, functions like nitrogen cycling, sulfur cycling, um, yeah, those kinds of functions. And I'm trying to think of others, but I think that's probably the main ones that have been properly studied. So if you were to remove, I guess this might be true for any animal too, we don't think about how important bacteria is, but if you were to just take the bacteria out, assuming you could from a coral, would it just die? It probably would, yep. <laughs> yeah, and as you said, that's true for most most organisms, unless they're in a very specific lab setting, and even then it can be complicated. Um, yeah, I guess we don't really know, however, if the bacteria are linked to bleaching yet. Um, there's been studies that have shown that bacterial communities can change during the bacterial communities associated with corals can change during a thermal stress event. Um, and it has often been observed as well that opportunistic pathogens tend to increase in abundance in thermally stressed corals. So again, it's very correlative and it's hypothesized that they might parallel or that the bacterial communities are at least responsive to a thermal stress. But yeah, unfortunately so far, this hasn't been a lot of evidence towards them being directly implicated in coral bleaching. Yeah, so it's quite early days still in terms of how this might be useful and how it might be used, but it seems yeah. promising in theory. Yeah, yeah, in theory, exactly, yeah. Things haven't been very normal the last year, but where do you spend most of your time actually? When in office, lab, field, I guess, um, yeah, usually it'll be mostly lab and office here in Melbourne. So we do most of our work here on an, an anemone, essentially, that kind of behaves like coral. So it, 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 um, it has an, a symbiotic association with those same algae. It bleaches as well. So it's an organism that's quite close to coral, but it's much easier to maintain and grow in the lab. So we do a lot of work yeah, on those anemones and not on corals themselves, but we do um, interact and collaborate a lot with the Australian Institute of Marine Science in Townsville. And they have um, what they call the sea simulator and they're amazing facilities where they can keep corals and basically manipulate so many different factors like temperature and light and water acidity, water flow, just anything you can think of, they can manipulate these factors and then yeah, conduct actual experiments on the corals themselves. So I've been up there a few times to do some sampling on yeah, corals that they're keeping 
in the C simulator as well. But um, yeah, here in the lab, it's mostly work on either the anemones or the algae that we keep in cultures. Um, recently, we've been, um, a colleague of mine has set up a coral room as well, and she's been trying to keep, uh, well, she's been successfully keeping um, one specific species of coral that we're trying to branch out onto as well. I find it kind of interesting that the, you know, the issue for coral is that it is so picky and that also is what makes it difficult to research, right? You can't just pick up a coral and bring it into your lab. They, they have these very specific requirements and that's why they're in so much trouble, right? Yeah, exactly. Coral husbandry is just so very, everything has to be precise and very detailed and yeah, keeping them is already a full-time job in, them, in, in, in itself. So growing them in the lab is even harder. And in comparison, the anemones that we keep are just so very easy to grow in numbers and in biomass as well. If you just keep feeding them, they'll grow. If you want more anemones, you just cut them in quarters and then each quarter will just become a new anemone. <laughs> quite, like it can take quite a while, but in a few months you can end up with hundreds of anemones in tanks right here in Melbourne and then just do experiments with them. So someone who studies birds, that sounds amazing. Um, a quick question about coral bleaching. Um, so with this method you guys are trying to impose, we're reintroducing algae potentially with bacteria in it. If a coral has been bleached, how long does it have until it's gone forever? And like, how likely is it you actually can bring it back from a bleaching event? Can you reverse it? Um, yes. So it can actually reverse itself in nature if temperatures go back to normal quickly enough. Um, I do not know, however, how long they have until they starve to death. I guess it probably depends on the coral species and on whether they are able to feed themselves in abundant amounts, because corals, especially at night, with their tentacles and their mouth, they're able to eat like shrimps and algae and stuff that's also present in the water. Yeah. So I guess it'd probably be a combination of yeah, how fast the temperature is going down, how efficient the coral is at um, feeding itself without the algae and probably yeah, species related factors as well. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to tell you if it's a matter of days or weeks. So I just, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> but it can, yeah, it can be reversed. It can reverse itself in nature if the conditions are appropriate. So that's also something that we could definitely do ourselves for sure. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's something that we do in the lab, for example, where we'll artificially bleach corals or anemones and then make sure that the conditions are right. And then we'll reintroduce algae either of the same species or different species if we want to test whether algae taxonomic identity can have an influence on how the coral functions as well. Yeah. Um, and the corals, again, if they're in the right conditions, will usually take up the algae and, and reform this symbiotic association and survive. 
Yeah, I guess I asked this because whenever you read in the news, maybe there's just a news bias. Whenever someone mentions coral bleaching, it's kind of end all be all corals bleached, call it a day. And they don't really talk about the idea of, no, actually, if like this can be reversed naturally, there are hope for this still. It's usually a very doomsday kind of headline. Yeah, well, because usually they do die afterwards. Yeah. I think it's fairly rare that at least when there's massive episode of bleaching, when like a whole reef, for example, is going to bleach, it, it has been extreme enough that the whole reef has bleached. So it's quite unlikely that the conditions will return to normal and they'll be able to survive. So yeah. I think, yeah, the news might be very doomy usually because they do tend to die yeah. in, most, in most cases, I think. You mentioned before too that one strategy with using this probiotic method would be to anticipate these bleaching events and then go to those corals and sort of prepare. How easy it is to is it to anticipate these events? Is it just you know that it's these are going to be really hot string of days? Bleaching is a high risk. Is that essentially it? Yeah, essentially that it's it's meteorological predictions that are going to predict the likelihood of um, coral bleaching. But yes, I think the main goal of all probiotics would be to prevent bleaching rather than to help recovery afterwards. I mean, if you can do both, then yay. But I think most of our work is into preventing bleaching because we kind of know how it is triggered. So we kind of know which bacterial functions we want in our probiotic in the end. Um, because essentially coral bleaching is first and foremost triggered by oxidative stress in the algae. Um, and so if we can find bacteria that can produce antioxidants like vitamin C or other antioxidants that we know of, um, these bacteria might be able to dampen this oxidative stress and then prevent bleaching from happening altogether. It is, it's such a, it's, it's such a sexy study in the sense that you have this conservation aspect, you have this animal that everybody's obsessed with, you have this areas that people want to go to, but then also this, you know, the idea of bacteria and something living inside of you that's not yourself. That's people are obsessed with as far as doing probiotics and, you know, the fact that we even do gut swaps and all that now, it's a pretty, it's a very sexy topic. <laughs> okay. So a quick recap. Corals are incredibly important animals that get their energy from the algae living inside them. During heat waves, the algae start to malfunction and the corals die. Unfortunately, this is happening more and more often due to climate change. But there are bacteria living inside corals and algae too. And if these bacteria can help protect algae during heat waves, for example, by producing antioxidants, then maybe we can use that to our advantage. Maybe we can add helpful bacteria and algae to coral reefs before heat waves to stop them from dying. Of course, there are also other projects trying to find ways to help corals adapt. But yeah, it's basically um, so it's basically part of like a whole suite of projects called assisted evolution. Um, and so it basically started with the accumulating proof that corals themselves won't be able to adapt quickly enough to these um, increasing rates of um, of global warming. Um, and so that basically we have to help them adapt. And so, yeah, there's a whole, a whole lot of different projects targeted either 
at the core. So for example, there's projects that aim to create core hybrids. So taking just two different core species and trying to have them make babies and kind of hope that the genetic lottery is in their favor and that will end up with combinations that like increase genetic diversity and increased um, yeah, combinations that will have better heat tolerance or acidity tolerance, for example. Um, then there's also projects directed directly at the algae. So for example, there's, which in my opinion, that's one of the most promising projects. So basically what this project is, is called um, the experimental evolution of the semantic algae living within the corals. And how that works is that these algae that are in culture have been kept for years at higher temperatures to kind of force the algae themselves to adapt to these higher temperatures. And so is that in the lab, sorry? So they've been kept in the lab at yeah. higher temperatures? Yeah. yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, That's in incubators um, in the lab. And um, yeah, for a few years, they've shown um, the algae themselves have shown increased heat tolerance. And then there's a paper that came out last year where they re-inoculated these algae into coral larvae. So larvae that were young enough that they hadn't acquired any algae yet. So instead of putting normal algae, they put these heat evolved algae in those coral larvae. And then they showed that these coral larvae in some cases had increased thermal tolerance as well. Oh, um, wow. So that's, yeah, that's also another, I think, very promising project that that's happening. That's exciting. Which, yeah, I think that's a very cool project as well. Yeah. And I think you made the point earlier too, which I thought might be worth mentioning again, that these are solutions to specific problems, but of course the bigger problem is climate change. And these are the ways we can help these animals adapt, but they're not going to solve the problem, right? It's a really sophisticated band-aid solutions, really, I guess. That's, yeah, you're exactly right. It's absolutely a band-aid solution. That's, I think we're pretty re realistic that, yeah, we won't be able to help the corals for decades and decades, especially if global warming continues to go crazy like it is at the moment. So, yeah, I think it's a temporary solution to kind of give for reefs a few more years, a few more decades mm. until, yeah, we figure, we figure this thing out and um, hopefully get it under control. Yeah, that gives me a lot of hope, though, because I, I personally remember being a high school student who wanted to study marine biology and, like, sending angry emails to my local member <laughs> just being like, what is the hope for my future? And yeah, buying time seems like an important strategy as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Even though, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, we all try to stay optimistic, but I think I'm a very pessimistic person by nature. And sometimes it's, yeah, you see the Australian government continuing to invest in calls and coal and it's like, why, why? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, we'll see, but yeah, I think one of my greatest hopes is to kind of see this 
see improvements in my lifetime, kind of see yeah, humanity as a whole, being able to invert the curve, I guess, maybe not invert, but at least stabilize it properly. I think that'll be a relief for sure. Yeah, and it's funny also to think that, I mean, bacteria, they're just the tiniest thing that you can think of. And with those tiny things, we might be able to influence something as big as the Great Barrier Reef. And I think it's quite interesting sometimes to just take a step back and think, oh, yes, this teeny tiny thing that I'm seeing on my microscope with a thousand times magnification might just end up helping a coral not to bleach on the Great Barrier Reef. And I think that's, yeah, that's pretty interesting to consider as well. That's really cool. I really like that way of putting it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Justin, seriously, thank you so much. That was really, really enjoyable to talk to you. Yeah. Cool. Pleasure. Yeah, it was fun. Absolutely. Thanks for the uh, invitation because it's been a lot of fun. Thanks again to Dr. Justin there for taking the time to chat with us and to Pine of Science Australia for putting us in touch. We'll post some links to Justin's work on our website and in the episode notes. Thanks for listening. Bye. Animalia Podcast is hosted by Annie Orsbrook and Farley Connolly, with occasional interjections by me, the sound engineer David Roker. Our logo is designed by Osvaldo Branklin-Yon, and all original music is by Sean Pratt.